My name is Todd Gray, Executive Director Treasurer for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Welcome to Leadership Lessons, which is a weekly prep platform where we discuss all things leadership with leaders in KBC Life and SBC Life. My guest today, as you can see already on the screen, is Dr. Jeff Orge, who's president of Gateway Seminary in California. One seminary, six locations, I think if I understood right from the right. tagline. Jeff is married to Ann. They have three adult children and five grandchildren. Uh, Brother Jeff, that's got to be exciting to have five grandkids. I was about to say, you, you're going to get me off subject here, and I won't be able to get back to the task because I love talking about my five grandchildren. That's awesome. Jeff has served as a pastor, church planter, and state convention executive director treasurer, uh, and now serving as president. He's written a number of books, um, seven so far, including The Painful Side of Leadership, The Character of Leadership, Seasons of a Leader's Life, and then most recently, Leading Major Change. Jeff will actually be in Kentucky in person next week at Parkway Baptist in Bardstown. It's a KBC event on a church strengthening gathering, and so if you want to know more about that, just go to kybaptist.org and you can register. I plan to be in attendance if um, if my schedule allows. Jeff, Kentucky Baptists are grateful for you, grateful for your leadership at, at Gateway Seminary. Welcome to Leadership Lessons. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to talking with you today and also being with you guys in Kentucky next week. Well, let's, let's jump right in. So you are president of Gateway Seminary. Again, one seminary, six locations. So just give us an update. How are things at the, at the school and what does the fall semester look like for you all? Well, things are quiet right now. We're in the middle of July, which is a restful time for us. We're at the end of summer school, haven't quite kicked off yet for the fall semester, but uh, we're ready to go for the fall. We uh, have an enrollment that looks good. It's about the same as last year, which we think is a, a win given the COVID situation that we're facing in the West. And uh, we're having planning to have face-to-face -face classes, augmented, of course, by uh, video access and also online programs. And so we're fully operational, good to go, ready for the fall semester. Just need a few more weeks to go by and we'll uh, get started. Did you just have to limit the class sizes? Dr. Orge, to accommodate the, the, the necessary distancing? Well, we've had to move some classes around. Uh, we're not doing uh, any outside conferences or chapel or any big gatherings this fall semester. So that freed up some conference rooms and chapel and other places for classrooms. And so uh, we, are, we are using those. But um, with a lot of students opting for the video conference delivery method anyway, uh, that took people out of the classrooms, and then with the larger rooms that we have available, we're, we're able to make it work. It's sure. it's kind of like a uh, uh, complicated chess game at this point in the in the planning, but uh, it it really is coming together, so it'll be fine. You're feeling what every what every pastor in America is feeling uh, right now, just in different ways. So tell us about Gateway. How is Gateway unique from the other SBC seminaries? Well, really uh, unique in two ways. First of all, we're the only Southern Baptist Convention-owned entity in the western half of the United States, uh, which gives us a unique setting. We're in the West. We identify in the West. We we reflect the West. Uh, we we just have a different a different feel to our culture and to who we are. Uh, that's one difference. And then, of course, the other big difference is uh, we've been called the most the most multicultural seminary uh, in the world, and about 65% of our students are not Anglo students. And so when you come to any class at Gateway, if there's, if there's 20 students in the class, you know, about six or seven of them will be Anglo and the rest will be from the nations and peoples of the world. And that diversity is reflected in our staff and uh, it certainly impacts the way we do our ministry, the way we teach, just the way we approach life. And so when you live and work in a very diverse context like we do, it, it just gives a different flavor uh, to your school. And that's how we're different than the other seminaries. We all teach the same things, basically, Old Testament, New Testament, preaching, counseling. The curriculum's not that much different from school to school, uh, but the setting makes us unique and really is an opportunity for anyone who wants to train maybe outside of a Bible Belt setting or outside of a more monocultural type experience to come and learn what it really looks like to be in this kind of diverse environment. So I, I know some seminary professors. I've been a seminary student, two different settings. And and uh, I think I came to seminary thinking I knew more than I really knew. And I understand that's that's not uncommon. Uh, in fact, one professor I know told me that, that he had to say to a, a class that 
I'm actually the only person in this room who gets paid to share his views on these on these these matters. So how do you help a student that that uh, needs to become a little more humble, maybe a little more teachable so they really can begin to gain knowledge and, and, uh, and training? You know, it's really interesting. We, we don't have that problem often at Gateway, but when we do, uh, we have to sometimes be pretty direct with students about the need they have to develop in the character of life or in, in the character of their Christian commitment so that they can function in life and ministry more effectively. Um, that's a distinctive about how we approach training here at Gateway. Uh, we are definitely training and challenging people intellectually, but we're also training and challenging them to grow in their character and in their relational skills. Because quite honestly, when I was a state executive for 10 years, uh, I did not have a pastor in that time that was terminated for doctrinal error or for failing to be able to preach an adequate sermon. They were all terminated uh, for either one of two things, either of course some kind of moral problem or moral failure, that would be clear. But the second one was just relational uh, inadequacy. They just couldn't work with people or get along with people or they didn't have a, a character sufficient enough to weather the relationships with people. And so we put some emphasis on that here at Gateway as well, not just training people intellectually and giving them the skills and the information they need, but also focusing on lifestyle development and character development and relational development for ministry leadership. So when you're teaching relational skills for ministry, is that just part of the culture of your overall teaching curriculum or are there particular classes that, that address well, that? It's both. It's part of the culture, but it's also in classes. For example, we have a class on intercultural communication and intercultural relationships to help people learn what that's like. We have a very robust theological field education program, which has character development as a pronounced part of the curriculum. Uh, we have uh, some, uh, we have intentional courses on uh, spiritual formation, uh, on relationship development, relationships, ministry relationships, things like this. So uh, it's a part of what we teach, but it's also, we try to have it as part of what we model as well. What do you do, Brother Jeff, to personally remain a lifelong learner? That you're staying fresh at all times. How do you how do you approach that? I have been a voracious reader my entire life. I I, I am a uh, I don't really watch a lot of movies or really any much of any television except sports, which of course aren't around these days. But uh, but instead, I, I spend a lot of time reading and I read not only for information, but I also read for recreation. I read I read, uh, of course, leadership books. I read, you know, theology and books like that that come that come our way. But I also read fiction and and uh, and then other things like travel and things like that, uh, just uh, to keep my mind stimulated and to, and to keep give me a more well-rounded perspective. So uh, the main thing I do to stay focused is just simply read and um, you know, by doing that, I'm able to access all kinds of leaders, all kinds of thinkers, all kinds of teachers. And I've been doing it so long. I have such a habit of doing that, that uh, it really comes it really comes pretty easily and naturally to me these days. Any particular books that you're working through right now that you found helpful or that you've that you've read recently? Oh, man, I, I've been on vacation and I've been reading fiction mainly. And uh, uh, so I've been doing that. Uh, I have just finished a book called The Breakdown of Higher Education, which was written by a professor emeritus at California State in the California State University system, which is a brilliant, insightful book written by one of the last conservatives to ever teach in a university in California. And uh, it's about what's happened in the last 50 years in higher education. And quite frankly, it came out in a timely way because it's it's really about what's happening in the streets of America right now and where we are uh, philosophically and politically as a result of what higher education has done in the last 50 years. So that book is the last uh, serious book I read before I went on vacation. I've just been back three days, so I'll get started on another one soon. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, what do you see, uh, Dr. Orge, as the future of theological training? What's on your radar uh, out, out in front? Well, the, the biggest thing that I think is coming is what I call competency-based education. And it is, uh, that's a nice phrase to throw out. It is hard, hard to do. But the idea that you have to go to seminary for three years, and, we, and if you finish seminary in three years, you're competent for ministry, is, is of course, never been true. We've always known that, but we do the best we can with the limitations we have. But competency-based education is really being pioneered in some places, uh, where the 
there are ways being developed to test what a person knows when they get to seminary. So you may come like to seminary from a business background and you may not need any real training in administration or strategic planning or financial management. So why have to take classes in that? You may have, if you're coming from that kind of background, not much in the background of theology or Bible. You may need to take more classes in that. And so trying to work to find ways to test competency and design a curricular response to competency is, is really challenging. But I think it's coming. And we're working on the sort of embryonic ways of doing that here at Gateway. Uh, it, it's not difficult to do for one student. It's difficult to do for a couple of thousand. That's the problem. And so we're, we're working on it. And I'm on the board of uh, the Association of Theological Schools, which is the national accrediting agency. And we've been watching two or three schools very closely as a board who are really implementing this more aggressively. Now, they're small schools, and they are really schools that serve uh, one denomination of churches. And so their, their competency skill set is pretty narrowly defined. Um, and so we're not going to be able to do exactly what they do, but we're trying to learn from what they're doing so that we can think, okay, how can we do that in a, in a larger context? Because quite frankly, almost everyone comes to seminary with some training in something. And so the idea that everyone's starting at the same place is a fallacy. And then the fact that everyone finishes at the same pace is also a fallacy. We have to find a way to work with this kind of competency-based approach. And uh, it's a challenge, but, you know, we all said online learning was a challenge 20 years ago. And now we're all doing it, and most are doing it pretty well. Uh, we'll do the same thing with this new approach, I think, to competency-based learning in the next decade. It'll become a real part of how schools do training and do education. I think that's exciting for, for students. Well, let's talk about the calling and, and your calling in particular, and then uh, calling to ministry. I understand you have roots in Georgia, uh, then you grew up in Texas, and you ministered in, in Missouri. And so when and how did you know, uh, Dr. Orge, that you were being called into a vocational Christian ministry? How did that happen? Well, I'll answer your question directly in just a moment, but I, I wrote a book called Is God Calling Me, which has been my best-selling book over all these years. Yeah, you got it right there. And in that book, I, I really lay out uh, a schematic, if you will, of understanding how the concept of call is used in the Bible and then how it's used and applied in life today. So I'll tell you my experience in terms of how I now understand it based on my research and writing and reflection over these years. I probably didn't understand it all this way when it happened to me. But I became a Christian when I was 13, and I did not grow up in a Christian family or really with any reference to God or the gospel in my life before my conversion. But when I became a Christian, I was saved in the context of a strong disciple-making Baptist church with a very capable pastor who had a stable leadership structure. And I, I came into that church as a 13-year-old and left as a 23-year-old. And um, when I was 17, in the midst of all of that, uh, I felt that God was calling me to ministry leadership. It was a profound impression that I had that grew within me over time. And when I started voicing this to my pastor and other leaders in the church, they were incredibly supportive of that and affirmed that they also saw in me uh, a sense of calling and the skill set and passion required to fulfill that calling. So when I was 17, um, I made, or really I turned 18 by the time I made the public commitment, but when I was 18, I made a commitment to ministry leadership. And and I, as I as I mentioned in the book, I, I was really confused at the time in that I, would, I made a commitment that God was calling me to be a pastor, nothing else. And even my pastor at the time tried to say, Jeff, you need to understand this concept a little more broadly because God may use you in various capacities over your lifetime. And I said, no. I was, you know, 17. I knew everything. I said, no, God's calling me to be a pastor. And he relented. And that's what kind of commitment I made when I made my public commitment. When I, in 1994, when God called me to leave pastoral ministry and become the state executive of the Northwest Baptist Convention, it was a crisis of faith for me sure. because I thought I was leaving my calling. Right. And if I had only listened to my pastor at 17 and developed a different understanding over those years, it would not have been so difficult for me to make that decision. Now I look back on it and I see that, that really there's three ways that God uses the word calling in the, in the scripture. One is a universal call to Christian in service and growth. 
That's found in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 1. It's, effect, it's effective for every believer. We're all called to grow and to serve. So in that sense, every Christian is called, but only in that sense. But then there's a second subsequent experience that a few believers have, and that's what I've labeled a general call to ministry leadership. And that's really what happened to me when I was 17, 18 years old. God was calling me to step out of that general call to Christian service and growth and to become a leader giving direction to all of those who had that first call experience. And I didn't realize at the time that that was separate from then assignments that God might call me to fulfill over a lifetime. And I've had four of those in 50 or 40 years of ministry leadership. God called me to be a pastor, a church planter, a denominational executive, and then a seminary president. And only when I became a seminary president was this, was this were all these concepts fully formed in my mind by that time. And I saw what was really happening, that God was not calling me to leave my calling, so to speak. He was simply asking me to take on a new assignment that he was giving me. And so the transition from state executive to seminary president was much simpler than from being a pastor to a state executive director. So that's how my call happened to me and how I've learned to understand it over the years and how I've conceptualized it in, in the little book that I wrote. So your book is, is God Calling Me, which I agree is an excellent book. I can understand why it's a, a bestseller. I've, I've given away lots of copies to some of our most, um, associational mission strategists, as well as pastors who work with, with young folks in their church who are experiencing a calling. Um, when you wrote this, do you have a concern that the, the second level of calling that you're, or the type of calling, not level, but the second type of calling you're describing, the call to Christian minor, uh, leadership, Right. Do you have a concern that's being neglected or possibly misunderstood or ignored? I don't think it's being uh, neglected. It, it is being misunderstood. Um, we, we have, I mean, your six seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention have record enrollment. There are large numbers of students who are coming to us who express that they have a general call to ministry leadership. Uh, where it's being confused or where, where there's misunderstanding is when that is equated too quickly with one vocational role and or even with a vocational role. Now, let me be careful about this. The idea of vocational Christian service, I know what that means, and I'm not critical of people who use that phrasing. But really, uh, that's not what it means to be called, because the vast majority of believers who serve in leadership across the globe do not have a vocation of Christian service. They don't get a salary. They have no retirement. They don't get insurance benefits. They serve because they're called to lead not because they get a vocational position. So I think that's the only thing that concerns me at this point about a misunderstanding is all of us have a general call, or excuse me, all of us have a universal call to Christian service and growth. A few of us have a general call to ministry leadership and God will then out of that experience, give us an assignment calling and maybe change that over our lifetime. But we wanna be careful we don't conflate the two because it's possible to receive a general call to ministry leadership as my wife has received and never take on a specific assignment that she gets paid to accomplish. She feels like her assignment is to serve the women's programming at Gateway Seminary as a volunteer and to give leadership to preschool and uh, children's ministry training again through the seminary, again in a volunteer capacity. So she's not a vocational Christian service person, but she's definitely fulfilling an assignment that does uh, fulfill her call to ministry leadership. So if that makes sense, that's the only confusion I think there is about it. We just have to be careful we don't equate called with getting a job. Those aren't always the same thing. That makes perfect sense. Thank you for the, the clarification. So when when you were called to change assignments, the third mm -hmm. the calling you're describing, a calling to a specific assignment, describe for us kind of in, in one pick whichever one you choose, what was going on internally? Uh, did you know that one position was wrapping up or one assignment was finishing? as something else was opening. Tell us about that experience. Well, I think I've identified uh, three different ways um, in the Bible where God communicates a call. One is what I call a sudden experience. That would be like the burning bush or, uh, you know, Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. And I'll give you another one that's not as supernaturally dramatic, and that's Jesus calling Matthew at the tax collector's booth. Because I think sometimes, in fact, when I first started writing about this and teaching on it years ago, I called this a supernatural experience. Then I realized, wait a second, they're all supernatural experiences. So the difference is this is a sudden experience. It just happens like, you know, in a moment of time. And 
and they aren't all like Matthew. They aren't all, you know, supernaturally like dramatic, like the burning bush or the Damascus road, but they are sudden. And that certainly has happened to me. Um, I, I certainly had that uh, kind of experience. Um, uh, and, 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 well, I'll talk about that in a moment, but that, that, that can happen. And then another way, uh, a second way that God calls is through what I call a, a reasoned process. And that is where you simply work through a process and decide uh, based on all the information I have and all the input I can uh, receive and all of the counsel I can obtain, I believe God wants me to change assignments. And you make that decision. And there's ample examples of this in scripture. Uh, one that comes to mind is Acts 16, one of the really remarkable passages. The Bible says, uh, Paul, you know, tried to go to Bithynia and the spirit wouldn't let him. And he tried to go to Mycenae and he was prohibited. And I did the math quest on that one time. That's a lot of walking around. <laughs> and I thought, what, what was going on there? And what was going on was Paul was investigating the options and trying to find where God wanted it. Yeah. And ultimately, he had the sudden experience of the Macedonian vision, and, they, and he went on to Macedonia. But he got there through a reasoned process is what I'm trying to say. And then the third way is that God sometimes calls through the prompting of others. And you can find this in Acts 13. You can find it in the Old Testament in Samuel picking out David. Uh, there are times in the Bible where someone comes along and says, you are the person God wants to do this. And frankly, um, I had a sudden experience. That's how God called me and gave me a general call to ministry leadership. It was a, it was a fairly dramatic moment of Bible reading and prayer and intense time of, uh, of conviction that God wanted me to do that. But when I got to the... Uh, uh, to the point where I was going to uh, go to be a church planter, that assignment came through a reasoned process. I, I, I read books on church planting. I was in a doctoral program about church planting. I, I talked to a lot of church planters. My wife and I had endless and uh, conversations about what God wanted us to do with our lives and where we were supposed to go and all of these kinds of things. And then I started investigating options and talking to the North American Mission Board and trying to figure out where to go. And it took about a year. And then finally, we just concluded that it was the best decision for us, and we made the move to the Northwest to plant the church. I never had a great quiet time inside. I never had a moment where I felt God really just told me to go. It just didn't happen. It was more of a reasoned process. And then I've always been reluctant because I'm, you know, like a lot of guys, I'm, I'm sort of independent-minded and a bit of a contrarian, and I don't like people telling me what to do. And so I've always been really reluctant to believe anybody when they came to me and said, you know, God told me to tell you this. I'm like, yeah, well, right. I, I don't want to hear that. But then I saw in the Bible that that's what happened a few times. Mm -hmm. so I said, well, maybe that can still happen today. Well, that's how I became the president of Gateway. I was at a meeting in Nashville and uh, went out for a walk during a break. And when we came back, the guy that I was walking with stopped me at the door and said, hey, before we go in, I need to tell you something. And I said, well, what do you what do you mean? He goes, I need to tell you something. He said, I believe that God wants you to be the next president of the Golden Gate Seminary. And I said, You're, I said, I remember jokingly saying, buddy, I thought we were friends. I mean, what are you talking about? Why would you do that to me? He said, no, we're not going back in this building until you take me seriously, Jeff. I, I really believe God is going to call you to do that. You need to start thinking about it. Well, well, you know, Bill Cruz was happily serving as president and one of my good friends. And I thought, this is crazy talk. Well, a few months later, uh, Bill announced his retirement, and then, and and I'm not I'm not exaggerating this one person. Over the next few weeks, I had a total of ten people contact me, and some of them I barely knew, and say, I don't know how to say this to you, but I just feel that God has impressed me to call you and tell you that He wants you to be the president of Golden Gate Seminary, and you need to be praying about it and thinking about it. And, and I, I was just like, what, what's going on here? You know, it was bizarre. And so when the board finally voted, I told my wife, look, all along, God's been speaking to us about this through other people. And if the board votes to have me be president, I'm going to take it. Because I believe that God is speaking to me through others at this point in my life, and I need to pay attention to what he's saying. And the board, board voted, I think it was 30 to 3 or something like that. But they voted, you know, pretty overwhelmingly for me to be president. And and I just said, yes, I'll, I'll come because I believe that this is how God is speaking to me this time through the work of others. And so I don't know how God uh, decides how to get our attention each time. Sure. But 
B, it's been either a sudden experience, a reasoned decision, or the prompting of others. And I find those same three patterns, both in the Old and the New Testament. And I'll just say one thing about this. I know it's a long answer, but I'll just say one more thing about this. These categories have soft edges. In other words, it's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like in that Macedonian experience, Paul went through a long reasoned process culminating with a sudden experience. So these things can work together. They can definitely work together. But I do see these three distinct ways in Scripture, these three distinct examples of how God communicated a call experience to his leaders. So, uh, Jim, when I entered in the ministry, um, a general assignment, I'm trying to get your term right. I'm trying not to use vocational Christian ministry. You're helping me to change my vocabulary, which I appreciate. But when I started in a, a, a Christian ministry position, I heard the older preachers say, but they made this statement. They would say your your ministry in a place is only as good as your calling to that place. And what they were saying was that the ministry is tough and you're going to probably want to quit at some point and leave. And there'll, there'll be days. The only thing that keeps you there is a clear sense that this is where God told you to come. Has that been your experience? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I One of the things I mentioned in the in the book is I, I have a section on some evidence of call or some benefits of call, that kind of thing. And one of the things I say is one of the benefits of being called is you stay, you stay called and you stay put and it's hard. But when you respond to God's call, you can't just walk away. You, you got to stay until he gives you a call to another assignment or gives you a movement to another responsibility. And I, I know how hard this can be, but uh, I've had some difficult days in ministry, which what kept me going was uh, God called me and I had to stay put and, and, and lead through that situation, whatever it was. So I agree with that. Uh, I definitely agree with that. So there are pastors very likely who are joining us now or who will listen later or who will listen to it when it becomes a, a podcast who are really, they're, at the very least, they're tired right now. And with that tiredness and fatigue, they could be entertaining the the idea of, of relocating. How would you help a guy who emotionally is tired, um, experienced three months of COVID quarantine and all the challenges, and is at least thinking maybe the Lord's leading me out of here? What 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 counsel without any more information than that would you general counsel would you provide? The first thing I would say is make sure that you are practicing good spiritual self care before you make that decision. Uh, make sure that you are rested. Make sure that you have recalibrated yourself with your devotional life. Uh, make sure that you are uh, recovered e emotionally from the devastations that have happened to our communities in these past few months before you make that decision. Uh, God can very well use these circumstances to create an openness for you to move on to do something else faster. No question about that. Just make sure that you're making an intentional decision to move to something, not to run from something or to flee from something. Because if you're doing that, you'll likely take with you the thing you're trying to get away from. Uh, so just make sure you're going to something that's proactive and, and positive uh, for you as a, as a decision. And when I say practice good spiritual self-care, listen, uh, pastors are, and ministry leaders like us, we're notorious for neglecting our devotional lives, for overwork and, and not taking care to rest. Uh, we're, we, we don't rejuvenate with good friends and with retreat time and with vacation. I don't mean vacation, go conquer a theme park. I mean vacation where you pull back and have some time to really restore and re refresh yourself. Uh, so be, when I say practice those things, you know, during a time of high stress like we've been through with COVID, uh, you know, it takes a lot out of us and you got to reset. Uh, you know, I just I jokingly said I you know, just came back from vacation. I, um, you know, I took some time off the first part of July and we, we didn't go to theme parks or, or national parks or anything like that. We can't. We're in California where we have essentially a lockdown. Uh, but so we stayed mostly home, but we got out. We walked. Uh, we did some recreation activities. We did we did fun things together as a couple. Uh, and and I. And I was, you know, mainly disconnected from email for those days and disconnected from my phone for the purpose of just rejuvenating. And I came back this week to work and I'm totally different than I was a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, I've been doing uh, video messages for pastors who are going on vacation who aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Things like that, just to do whatever we can here at the seminary to give guys breaks 
make sure you've taken care of yourself and you're in a good place spiritually and emotionally before you make a decision to walk away. Well, that's that's super that's super helpful. And maybe even add to it that there are some trusted people who can speak into your life. So folks that really know you and, and can yeah. say, look, maybe God's calling you out. I, I don't see it. Um, but, you know, I'm supportive of you. I, I, well, the first church I pastored, Jeff, six months in, I was ready to quit. And uh, everyone agreed with me except one man who reminded me that I promised the church I'd stay for one year. <laughs> and he told me to keep my word. And I did end up staying for five years. And, and he was the right person to speak into my life at, at that time. Well, I, I, I write in the book that there's the prompting of others that can be a calling. But the other thing I write in the book is there's something else in the Bible, and that is the confirmation of others. Prompting is on the front end. Confirmation is on the back end. And what you got from that brother was confirmation. Wait a minute. You said you were called. I'm confirming that you are. you got to stay with us. Mm -hmm. And so getting those kind of people to speak into your life is very important. Um, you know, in my, in my book, The Painful Side of Leadership, I wrote a section on developing a friendship team as a leader. And that's having uh, certain people around you that you trust and that can speak frankly to you about your life. And that's a really good way to help keep that balance and to keep you from making emotionally charged decisions in a wrong way. Yeah, super helpful. Well, let's talk about evangelism. So as you know, baptisms are continual decline in our uh, convention. Um, leaders set the bar for leadership, as goes the, the pastor, the state exec, the seminary president. Uh, as goes the leader, so go the people, and generally speaking. Um, who do you see setting a good pace right now in Southern Baptist life in evangelism? Who are some leaders that you look to and, and say, this guy's really helping us in evangelism? Well, here in the West, there's a pastor named Sean Beatty in Clovis Hills, California, that is fantastic. Uh, he inspires me every time I see him or every time I'm around him uh, with his uh, creative, intentional, and forthright declaration of the gospel and calling people to faith in Christ and keeping evangelism at the forefront of what they're doing as a church. Uh, man, that that that's uh, a good and significant inspiration to me. Another person who motivates me is my, is my pastor. He, uh, he preached this last Sunday on sharing the gospel during a pandemic. Wow. And he was very forthright about the fact that we are responsible to be gospel tellers did not go away when the pandemic arrived. And quite frankly, for me, it has. Yeah. And I have been really, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is. I've been disappointed, frustrated, uh, kind of bamboozled, if you will. Yeah. Because this summer, um, you know, I'm working either in isolation in my office or from home. Uh, I'm going out very rarely and seeing very few people. And so it's been really challenging to think about what that looks like. But uh, Pastor was pretty clear sun Sunday about, about how we can do it more effectively. And I'm thinking about this week, all right, how can I put those things into practice? So, you know, I, I get inspired, you know, by those guys and by what they're doing here in the West. Uh, there's a lot of good national leaders, I'm sure, as well. But, you know, our context is more this direction. And so I kind of think more about that. Uh, in this context. Well, thank you for highlighting those those guys. You know, I, I, I love it when the answer is my pastor is doing is doing this is for me because that's I mean that really is where it that's where it starts. We need we all need an example. We all need pace setters in our our life. Jeff, I'd say for me that there's a convenience store that I've stopped in uh, every day and built relationships now with the several folks that are there, learned their names, prayed for them publicly, in some cases shared the gospel. And then uh, last week went through a training with a group, I think it's called needhim.org possibly. And they're, they're kind of an online chat group. I think they're connected with Billy Graham Center in some way. I could be wrong on that. But several of our folks have been trained to kind of uh, work with them as an online way of, of sharing them. The gospel. So there are there are ways. So when you are free to talk with someone about about Christ, what what's your approach? You use the Romans Road. You share your testimony. How do you go at it? Well, I like uh, dialogical approaches, and so I typically like to start with questions and ask people, you know, uh, something about life that may be connecting to our conversation at hand. Like, oh, I notice, you know, you have children. Uh, you know, do your children ever ask you about you know spiritual questions, or ever ask you about things in relationship to God, or uh, you know, maybe I know they've had a death in their family or something like that, and I'll ask them about it. In fact, when I teach on evangelism, uh, I actually say there's there's four there's four key things I look for. Uh, people die, health fails, relationships struggle, or things break. 
And when I, when I know of one of those things going on in a person's life, I ask them about that. And then I ask if they've considered how God might be at work in that circumstance, or would they like to hear how uh, a perspective on that, just something about that conversationally usually gets us into the opportunity to talk about the gospel. Um, and so in terms of sharing the gospel, I, I use the same basic outline that was used when I, when I came to faith in Christ, which is uh, the same outline that's in the uh, uh, Four Spiritual Laws book. God loves you. Your sin separates you from God. Jesus died for your sin. You can make a choice to receive the gift of salvation into your life. And so that's kind of how I take it. And, you know, you add scriptures or depending on how much time you have and how the person is responding, you add whatever scripture, whatever you need to, whatever illustrations you need. But but that's how you do it. I uh, Listen, I, I've been trained in every Southern Baptist convention uh, evangelism method that's been, a, that's been available in my lifetime. I've been a certified trainer of every one of them. And so I, I kind of like when I'm sharing the gospel, I draw from all of those things to bring to bear the conversation. But as I've, as I've shared the gospel more and more over the years, I've become very much better at just having dialogue with a person about their life and about the gospel. And not so much having to make a presentation as have a conversation. And, um, and I, I found that to be uh, effective, but quite honestly, probably I'm more effective at that because I've had all that training in my background. You know, I wasn't able to do that earlier on. So I think the training was very helpful to me. But now uh, I'm more likely to try to engage a conversation than I am just to make a presentation. And the things you described about the relationships you have in your community are the very kinds of things that I think you can do to engage those those conversations. So, Jeff, when you when you were a pastor and you were trying to encourage folks to be intentionally evangelistic, um, some were reluctant. Some try to say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And maybe you said there's, I don't see a gift. Maybe you didn't say that. Uh, but how did you try to motivate people to um, be intentionally evangelistic? And how would you do that today if you were pastoring? Um, uh, I, I, that's a fabulous question. I'm reluctant to tell pastors how I would do it today because I, I'm not sure, but I think I know how I would do it. So I'll, I'll put a caveat in front of it and say, here's, here's what I would likely do. Uh, I will do the same thing I did when I was pastor. Two things. Number one, train people in a simple gospel presentation methodology that's reproducible and you can train over and over and over in your church. One little weekend course or one training seminar is not going to do anything that's going to make a lasting difference, in my opinion. I think you need to commit to something for five years and do it every other month or every few weeks or however often the training uh, is required. But you just keep doing it. And when you repeat something over and over, it builds a cadre of vocabulary and experiences and training. And then people start recruiting each other to the training. So you want a simple, reproducible training method that people can use to share the gospel with someone. That's number one. Then number two, as a pastor, I recognized that there were varying levels of comfort and ability and motivation for gospel sharing in my church. And I stopped, I started as a pastor browbeating people about that and condemning them for it and trying to get everyone to do the same thing in sharing the gospel. And through a process of growth, I learned that was a bad approach. And so I shifted and changed to a different approach where I saw our church as an evangelistic team or movement. And I said, we need some of you to be prayer warriors. We need some of you to provide childcare for those of us who are going out to do evangelism. We need some of you to teach children Sunday school. We need some of you to teach adult Sunday school. We need some of you to do this or that or the other. And then uh, to take it to the to the to the end, on a Sunday when a person would come forward in my service and say, "I've received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I want to be baptized," and I would introduce them, I would say, "How many of you have prayed for this person to come to faith? Would you please stand up? How many of you have actually shared the gospel with this person in any way? Would you please stand up? This person who's come forward has two children that are in our preschool this morning. If you've ever cared for one of their, this person's children in our preschool while they've been in a worship service hearing the preaching of the gospel, would you stand up? And by the time we got there, I'd have 5, 10, 25 people standing up. And then I would say, all of you have participated in this person coming to faith in Jesus today. Thank you for being a part of an evangelistic church. And because I did that, I had the gospel tellers, those frontline people who love going out and share the gospel and people who were doing it in, uh, in their workplace and people doing it in their neighborhoods, people doing it in evangelism programs. We had some of that, yes. But I had large numbers of other people who weren't willing to do that, weren't able to do that, didn't feel comfortable doing that. And rather than condemn them, condemn them or browbeat them, 
I put them on the team in a different capacity. And that's why our church grew from 100 to 300 in five years. And we baptized 40 or 50 people a year because we were doing that kind of approach, not just uh, depending on trying to get everybody to do the same thing. And it really wasn't working anyway. So I'm glad I moved away from it. That's excellent. Intentional in training. And I would create a team concept or a team movement approach where you involved everyone and you celebrated everyone who was a part of that. I was at a church recently that took it even a step farther. Uh, they had an outdoor baptistry, and they actually had people in the baptistry. If you've ever been a part of this, pray for them to be saved. You know, share the gospel with them. Get down in the water with us. And they had four, five, six, eight people down there walking in the water, standing around the person getting baptized. And I thought, man, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Well, I had too small a baptistry for one reason. But that kind of approach it gets my blood running, as you can tell by my excitement in this answering this question. But that, those are the two focus points I would use if I was trying to create evangelism momentum in a church today. That's a game changer. Thank you. Thank you for that. Let's um, let me ask one more question on, on evangelism. Did you set baptism goals as a church leader, pastor? And why? Or if, you, if you did, why? If you didn't, uh, why not? No, we did not set baptism goals, but we did set goals for attempts to share the gospel. OK, because. We, we, we tried to, we struggled with what can we really uh, hold ourselves accountable for? And we can't hold ourselves accountable for conversions. We really can't even hold ourselves accountable for baptisms. But we can hold ourselves accountable for attempts to share the gospel. Explain, and so, explain attempts to share the gospel. Well, initiating a gospel conversation uh, by saying, uh, you know, can I talk with you about Jesus Christ? Or have you ever, you know, okay. something will happen when you die? I mean, something like that. You're and trying so, to witness. If the person is open to it, then you're willing to walk through. But you're trying to open the door. It may not open, but you're trying. Trying to start a gospel conversation that will lead to a gospel presentation. And those are not always the same thing, by the way. You know, a gospel conversation sometimes, I think, has been reduced to having a sweet talk about, you know, spiritual things. And that's not what we're shooting for. We're trying to share the gospel. So a gospel conversation should lead to and include a gospel presentation. So what I did, for example, with myself and with my deacons and associate pastors, people like that, is we would say, let's set a goal. Uh, let's say we're going to say, every one of us is going to try to have five gospel conversations this week or three gospel conversations this week. Let's go out there and do everything we can to initiate those and see what happens. And what we discovered was when we tried to talk about the gospel, God seemed to open doors for us to do that. And so we could hold ourselves accountable for, and we could set that as a goal. Now, I don't have a problem with setting a baptismal goal. I frankly do have a bit of a problem setting a conversion goal. Uh, that's theologically beyond where I'm comfortable going. I, I don't think we can do that. But we can certainly set a goal of how many times we try to share the gospel. And then from that, we can see how God will work through the rest of it. Jeff, uh, much of your, thank you so much for your passion on evangelism. Much of your writing has been about leadership. So let's talk about leadership and your speaking ministry, teaching ministry as well. Uh, why has that been such an important area of focus for you? Why have you spent so much time trying to teach others about leadership? Well, I discovered when I became the state executive in the Northwest Baptist Convention that uh, the really crucial issue for most pastors was leadership development and developing greater leadership skill. And so I started reading and studying and writing and teaching on this in every capacity possible. And I think in a four or five year period, I read about 200 books on leadership and just started developing all kinds of materials that I could help teach about that. And as a part of that passion, God started opening doors of opportunity for me. And so it became really kind of a natural progression for me. My training is all in evangelism. Uh, my, my doctoral project was entitled Developing Effective Listening Skills for Personal Witnessing. Oh, wow. I mean, my, my whole focus was on evangelism. And Dr. Roy Fish, the, uh, you know, longtime professor at Southwestern, was my uh, evangelism supervisor and my, my doctoral mentor. I, I, that was the focus of my life until I was 35 years old. And, and when I became the state executive, God really shifted me. The passion for evangelism remained, but he helped me understand that the primary focus the rest of my life was going to be write, reading, writing, speaking, and teaching on leadership. And here at the seminary, trying to motivate leaders to go forward and do the work. So that's sort of how the development took place. It, it really was not what I intentionally set out to do, but it was really what came to me. Uh, as my life and ministry unfolded. So uh, that particular book, uh, Leading Major Change, a recent book, I have a copy of that here. Several of our folks have, have read it. You talk about 
the uh, building, the uh, relocating a seminary, which sounds like it's a pretty big deal, and you, you yeah. share some church planning experiences as well. Uh, why did you why did you write that book? Well, the seminary relocation was uh, dramatic. Remember, we moved the tenth largest seminary in the United States four hundred miles. Unbelievable. This wasn't down the block. We picked up and went across the state. And that was a very significant time in all of our lives. And uh, everything about my life led up to that in terms of my leadership preparation. And so when we were doing it, um, I just I just I spent so much time leading, preparing and developing the seminary to do it that I all the most all the material in the book. I taught the seminary during those two year periods of in chapels and in employee meetings and in other kinds of contexts. I was teaching and constantly uh, training them on going through major change together. And as I say in the book, that was really my fourth major change. I relocated a church. I planted a church. I built and relocated a state convention office complex and then I built and relocated the seminary. And so all my life sort of I've been reading and writing and thinking about major change. And the book was kind of a culmination of all of that. Somebody said, you know, how long did it take to write that book? Well, it took about 25 years. Uh, but it only took about, you know, uh, six months to actually put it on paper, but it took a long time to put it together. But that's how the book came about. Chip, if, uh, if a leader is trying to accomplish anything at all, um, he's going to probably make some mistakes along the way, he or she. Any, any places in your ministry resume where you wish you had a do-over? Uh, dozens. Any you want to share? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I'm not trying to be evasive. Some of my worst mistakes have been things I really can't talk to you about today. Sure. Uh, I've made. Let's, let's ask this then. Yeah. What uh, what what are some ways that even in mistakes that you've seen God help you and shape you as a as, as a yeah. leader? And and I can definitely definitely talk about that. Um, uh, I, I've made some some serious mistakes in personnel management. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've not made any any unethical mistakes with money, but I've made some bad decisions, bought some things we shouldn't have spent things, you know, just bad decisions. Sure. Um, and, and, and I've, I've done, uh, I've, I've made mistakes along the way, but in my book, the painful side of leadership, I, I write a, I had a chapter on handling a leadership mistake. Yeah. In there, I, I made this statement. I said, if the three most important words in a romantic relationship are, I love you, then the three most important words in a leadership relationship are, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Yep. Getting your team together and saying, I was wrong. I was wrong about that judgment. I was wrong about that decision to hire that person or to dismiss that person. I was wrong about this programming choice. I was wrong. Um, I have discovered that those words diffuse so much difficulty in organizations because, quite frankly, most of the people around you already know you blew it. They knew it. And, Jeff, how many, it's a rhetorical question, but how yeah. many ministries would have been saved with those three, if those three words would have been used? No kidding. Uh, and so I've learned to say, uh, you know, I was wrong. And, uh, and, and that is a painful thing to have to say. But here's the, here's the paradox. A lot of leaders think when you say I was wrong, it diminishes your leadership. It doesn't. It actually elevates it because your followers already know that you were wrong. They already know you made a mistake and, and they're wondering if you are going to have the humility and the courage to admit it and stop, uh, you know, beating a dead horse, so to speak, and dismount. And so I've learned to say that, and I've learned to, as I say, in the, as I say uh, sometimes, I've learned to fail faster over the years. Uh, I, I don't like failing. I don't like making mistakes. But when I've made one, I've learned more quickly to say, uh, this, was, this was a mistake, bad decision. We're going the wrong direction. I'm sorry. we got to back up and do it a different way. And uh, uh, that's, that's, been a, that's been a painful but a very helpful lesson over the years. God uses God uses pain to shape leaders, even self-inflicted uh, self-inflicted pain. Well, we could talk to you all day about leadership. I, I would recommend any listener to pick up any of your your books. I'm the next one I'm going to order is the painful side of leadership. I came across that when I was looking at your kind of your your background um, and your blog posts, Jeff. I read several things that were on your website with the seminary, and so folks can go to Gateway Seminary and find your blog. There's probably a way to subscribe. 
to your, your blog, super helpful. Uh, this one called uh, Beware Bravado, uh, making big bold statements about what you're going to do, what you would have done. The Lord might just give you a chance to see what you would do, and that, that's an excellent article. The one that came out on uh, on freedom, I thought was was super as well. So thank you for for that. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about about uh, COVID in California. Sure. How things are going for for you all with your just restrictions in your state. So Washington Times put out that Governor Gavin Newsom is being sued over his ban of in-home Bible studies and all indoor church operations. That's those lawsuits are happening all over the all over the country. We, we, we all know that. But how is uh, how are those bans being received? What's your perspective on on some of those? Not not to get you in trouble politically, but just yeah. how's it being received in the state? Well, I'm I'm more than glad to respond. Uh, the state of California has uh, extended some of their uh, bans, if you will, to churches and to religious organizations, and this has been controversial because, of course, some churches have strenuously uh, opposed these and felt that they were an overstepping of governmental authority. And my position has been that uh, if it's a matter of conscience, I, I, I will support pastors who feel that way. But I think there's another side of the argument, and that is that many churches have many members that are in high-risk categories in California, and for them to meet would actually be putting people you know, at risk. And so they've chosen not to meet. And frankly, I've found that I can support that decision as well. I think this is a matter of conscience and a matter of conviction. And Christian brothers need to show each other some deference on this issue because I think there is some room to disagree about this without there having to be uh, antagonism among Christians, if you will. So, so pastor, here's yeah. uh, no, a pastor who is willing to go along and with, with government restrictions at his own pace and his own comfort level is not necessarily a he's not certainly not a flaming liberal and the pastor who says look my religious liberties are being trampled i have to stand up and say something he's not he's not wrong either you're saying this is a christian liberty issue i am saying that it is a christian liberty issue and i can give you a couple of close by examples including my own church we have an auditorium that seats about 400 uh we put well over a thousand people on that campus every sunday morning we used to have three services now we have two uh for lots of reasons, we had to make that change. If we moved to having live services right now, we'd have to have eight to 10 of them to accommodate that crowd. Yep. And the I, I'm a member of a predominantly African-American church. I have been for years. Um, it's a higher risk community in California particularly. And so there's a number of reasons why our pastor has simply said, we have to find other alternatives. We, we can't we don't have an adequate facility to even do social distancing and make this work. I know of another church in our area that has chosen to start having worship services. They're using social distancing. They have a very large auditorium. They're having multiple services, but they've agreed. We're going to follow the government's mandates, for example, on no singing and things like that, because we, we feel like that those are for our best health in, in our best health interest. And so I see pastors not meeting. I see them meeting but accommodating. And I see some saying, no, we're just simply going to meet. And it's a matter of conscience. And I think we need to have some patience with each other. And the last thing we need to do is find another reason to divide and argue with each other as Christian brothers. We need to not do that over COVID. That's good. That's good counsel on most um, religious liberty or I'm sorry, uh, Christian liberty issues. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the SBC. So we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which means that we hold key doctrines in common. We right. we believe in the Great Commission, uh, practice it. We have a high view of scripture. We are partnered together in ministry through the cooperative program. What's your view of how things are right now in SBC life? Uh, I think there's always uh, a mixed perspective on how I see things in SBC life. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I am very encouraged by a lot of what is going on in the convention. Despite the uh, outcries about racism in our culture, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has made dramatic strides in the last three decades in this area of diversity and of diversity in leadership. Uh, you can look at the boards of trustees. You can look at the programs of our uh, 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 of our meetings. You can see the changing layers of leadership and the diversity that's reflected there. So on issues like that, I'm very encouraged. But you've already brought up the part of it which causes me to be very discouraged, and that's baptisms. Mm -hmm. um, there is simply no uh, no 
positive spin that can be placed on that message. That's right. uh, the, the decline of our capacity to win the loss to faith in Jesus Christ and see them publicly declare that faith in baptism is going to ultimately lead to the end of our denomination. I mean, not next week, not next year, but if we stay on this pattern for another decade or two, we'll be gone. Uh, and, and, and it's not just a matter of survival. It's a matter of the eternal destinies of people that are at stake here. But we have to find a way, we have to find a way to become intentional about evangelism and to make it, again, the focus of what we do and of what we're doing. And there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. Uh, last year, about this time, I delivered a pretty major uh, speech here at the seminary on uh, the reasons why the decline of baptisms was taking place. And I won't try to repeat that here, but it's not just a one, uh, a one uh, problem uh, issue. And it, there's not just like a simple one thing that we need to do to solve this. It's going to take a, 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 comp, a, a comprehensive approach to solving this issue, but we got to get to work on it in ways we're not doing now because it's the great concern I have about being Southern Baptist right now. I'm very pleased with how we're progressing uh, in areas of diversity. I, I think we're making good, we have good strength financially. Uh, I think that the seminaries, uh, we have six of the 10 largest seminaries in North America. I mean, uh, the mission boards are large and functioning and doing their work. And yes, there's always problems and issues that need to be resolved and change that need to be made. But overall, in those perspectives, a lot of good things. But the one thing that just causes me heartburn is this declining baptisms and the fact that we just seem to not have a capacity to get a handle on that. So that's the issue I think we've got to find a way to talk about and address if we're going to really uh, talk about what the future is going to be in a meaningful way. Jeff, what you're describing at a, a macro level that the denomination will end if we don't get if we don't get evangelism figured out is true right now at a micro level as well. Churches in, in COVID will not survive if they don't figure out outreach beyond beyond COVID because a lot of us are just not going to come back. But there is an open door to to say, okay, our, our core group is here, whether it's 40% or 50% of regular attendance, the giving is 85 to 100 percent and most churches some but, but above 100 percent this is the time to prayerfully figure out how do we reach new people with the with with the gospel same true for our denomination let me wrap up with a uh, a final kind of question about about leadership once again so um leadership requires courage uh, there's nothing easy about leadership a lot of leaders are, are are tired what makes for a courageous leader in your view a courageous leader is the person who is willing to do whatever is required in the moment to lead the organization forward, fully aware of the consequences that may come, but, but willing to bear those consequences as needed. Um, an immature leader says, I will lead, but God will deliver me from the consequences. Mm. You can find ample examples in the Bible where God did not deliver his leaders from the consequences of taking a courageous stand. So a courageous leader today says, I will lead, I will make the decisions that are required in my ministry context to advance God's kingdom, and I will bear the consequences that come, whatever those might be. And in our culture, those consequences are getting more intense and I think are going to become even more onerous. And so this is not just a, a, a wordsmithing or, a, a, or an inspirational moment to end. It's serious business. Courageous leaders are going to have to step forward and say, we're going to do what's right. We're going to make the hard decisions. We're going to bear the consequences because we believe that eternity is at stake and we have to do what we have to do. So while you're speaking, I'm thinking about uh, Joshua, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, uh, Daniel, and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, who said, hey, let's, let's, let's go over here. It might be that the Lord will work for us, uh, but there's no restraint to God's sake by many or by few. What do you say to the courageous leader, guy that wants to be, that's just kind of been, he's been knocked down. He, he stepped out. And he's experienced some of those consequences and um, now being challenged to jump back into the, the battle. Well, I would simply say that the pattern of the scripture is is really more that God uh, allows suffering and difficulty in the lives of leaders, not that he always delivers. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you used great illustrations there. Sometimes I, I say it this way. You know, sometimes when you pray, you get an earthquake, Acts 16, you know, but then turn over a few chapters and Paul was in prison for two years. You don't think he wasn't praying during that time? I mean, and when I read that one day, I actually put my Bible down and I looked up to heaven and I said, God, why no second earthquake? I mean, seriously, you couldn't do another one? 
-hmm. And I realized, you know, God didn't do an earthquake because he had a purpose in allowing Paul to be in prison for two years before he was able to accomplish his purposes through him. So I would say to leaders who are beaten down, that's the way it is sometimes. That doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Doesn't mean you're not spiritually committed. Doesn't mean God isn't using you. Doesn't mean you're not doing the right thing. It just may mean that you're in a season of difficulty that God is using to get his, his purposes accomplished in your life and in your ministry. Jeff, I'm thankful for what the Lord's done in your life and thankful for the experiences that have brought you to where you are now. I'm thankful that to be part of the same convention that, that you're part of. Super excited about Gateway Seminary. Uh, one of your trustees, I think you have a Kentucky trustee, uh, Andrew Dyer, if I'm not mistaken, is on your is on your trustee board. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you in Kentucky next week. I think that's Thursday with someone right. at org to get the details. How can we pray for you as we close out? You know, the seminary is really strong as we're headed into the fall, but the reality is that we are having a more request for scholarship assistance than we can meet. And students want to come to seminary, but because of COVID and other issues, the economic realities are difficult right now for many who want to come to seminary. So pray that God will raise up the scholarship assistance needed for students to go to school this fall. Uh, that is our number one prayer request right now as we're working on getting ready for the next semester. Well, I'd like to pray pray that for you now, if we could. Dear Father, thank you that we can pray. Thank you for Jeff, and thank you, Lord, for what you've done in him, dear Lord, that you might also do a work through him. Thank you for every experience that's brought him to the place of leadership that he is right now. Thank you, Lord, for the things that he's learned that he's so gladly willing to impart to others. We pray together for Gateway Seminary, dear Lord, for these students who want to be in school, who feel uh, even called to be in school and receive training, but lack the resources. We pray that you'd provide in a marvelous way, dear Lord, that there be uh, many financial donors that want to provide scholarships for students, that students would find help in other ways, maybe even apart from the seminary, that their own friends and family, or maybe just an anonymous uh, gift would help them. But, but I pray, Lord, that as Jeff has brought this request, for to come for your throne that you'd meet it in in ways bigger and greater than he or others who are with him or have even thought about thank you for every good gift that you've given us father thank you for saving us and thank you for calling us into a ministry uh, a calling and then giving us specific assignments to carry out help us to stay faithful until christ returns or calls us home it's in his name we pray amen Thank you for listening to Leadership Lessons with Dr. Todd Gray. Find past episodes on our website at kybaptist.org slash leadership lessons.